First off, it's really, really great uh, to be here. Um, just a show of hands, how many people have gotten to hear me share before? Maybe just raise your hand. Okay, so I can act up. There's not no new people in here. Okay, so you already know how it goes then. Um, one, I, I always love getting to come and share. You guys treat me like family. Um, and uh, and I, I love that uh, Aaron so often trusts me um, to deliver whatever I feel like the Lord is saying to me uh, in my way. And so that I don't get to do that very often in, in every space. And so I'm always excited to come. Um, so look, uh, you guys know I'm long-winded. And so we really, you know, if we want to get to Cracker Barrel on time, we got we to gotta get this going. Um, we're going to be traveling through um, a psalm today. Uh, and it's going to be Psalm 73. Uh, and, and if you're not, like, super familiar with psalms, psalms are, are, are a collection of acrostic poems, theological songs uh, that some writers uh, put together, and uh, it's about halfway through your Bible. Um, and, and, and these psalms were meant to provide wisdom and instruction to the people of God. Uh, mostly, they weren't very literate, right? And so this was one of the main ways you, you gained your understanding of, of God and your theology. It was also a way for kings and, and rulers to sort of pass down and, and encapsulate wisdom for, for their people. So um, I love the Psalms. I love the songs because the Psalms are super authentic. They're like super vulnerable. They, 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 the Psalms have not paid attention to our 21st century sanitized Christianity. They're not, they're not super interested in that. Um, and, and I love it because I, I find that when I read the Psalms, I'm reminded of what it's like to be a human with God. I don't know if any of you have ever felt like you're in your room, maybe you're trying to pray, and you're like, I don't even talk this way. Like, this is, like, if someone walked in on you, you'd be like, okay, are you auditioning for something? Like, this is, this is strange. But, but the Psalms don't read that way. They read, like, people dialoguing, engaging in real time, in real life with God. Um, and, and, I, and I love that. And so, um, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, Psalm uh, 73, and if you'll go ahead and put the first section up on the screen. Um, Psalm 73 is a psalm about, um, honestly, it's a really honest psalm about the confusing experiences of faith that we sometimes can have. Uh, this, this, you're gonna, we're going to read it through, and it's like, it's, it's visceral, it's, it's real, it's, it's a person struggling in real time with what it is that's happening in his life, and he's bringing it uh, before God. And so here's how the service is going to go. I'm going to read it through. I'm going to give a super scholarly, exegetical commentary line by line of Psalms, you'll see, uh, I, I promise. Um, and, and I'm just going to read it for us all at once, just so we can understand. I'll, and I'll sort of um, take it in sections and sort of debrief, because, you know, sometimes um, Psalms can have this poetic language. It's not always super clear what it means the very first time. And, and then we're going to go back through, and we're just going to kind of take it chunk by chunk, because I think there's a lot of things that God wants to speak to us uh, in this Psalm today. And so, uh, that's what we're going to do. Um, first off, I want to say hi to my wife who's watching at home. I love you. Um, if you've ever seen my wife, you'll know that I can preach well because you'd have to say like, oh, he must be very articulate, you know, because you'd, you'd be trying to figure out how it is I ended up with her and you're like, oh, he must have a great personality, you know, he can talk well. Uh, and that's how it happened. And so uh, let me pray for us and let's go ahead and get started. Dad, I thank you for the joy, the blessing of getting to gather um, as a body with your children. Um, Lord, so grateful for, uh, in the midst of such a tough and trying season, one of the things that you've reinforced to us is how much we need each other. Holy Spirit, would you be with us today? Um, Lord, if there's anything selfish, anything self-motivated or self-concerned in my, in my preaching, would you hide it from their ears? 
uh, would you destroy it? If there's anything from you, Lord, that's good and powerful, that's, that's, um, that's useful in making us more righteous and like you, Lord, would you exalt it? Would you plant it deep? We pray all this in your name. Amen. So, it's not showing up on my screen, so I'm just going to pull out my uh, Bible here, and we're going to go ahead and get started. So, this is Psalm 73. It says it's a psalm of Asaph, and we're going to come back to that. It says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he's acknowledging, like, God, I know who you are, but there's this sense of, like, man, I I was almost caught because I'm looking around at me at a world that doesn't seem to fully represent and reflect who you say you are. I know that you're good to the upright, but all I'm seeing is the arrogant and the wicked, and they seem to be prospering. He goes on to say, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. I, I, I... I feel this way sometimes when I get online and I'm like, what a life it must be, you know, for some of these people who are so wealthy and, um, and have so much influence and don't seem to know the Lord, no accountability. He says, therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity and sin. Their evil imaginations have no limits, right? So it's a sense of people who are continuing in wickedness. Not just people who who sort of mess up sometimes and and stumble and come away, but actually people who have made uh, wickedness into an art form. They they grow in it, and their imaginations uh, combined with their wealth and their prosperity lead to wickedness that we couldn't... uh, normally comprehend. This is like when you go to someone's house at Thanksgiving and you think what you're seeing is a sweet potato pie and it's just a pumpkin pie with a little bit of nutmeg on it. It's like that's the evil, this is the wickedness that we're talking about. It's not supposed to be, it's not supposed to be that way. That's not in heaven, I'm telling you. Okay. So, they scoff and they speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High even know anything at all? Right, so it's this idea, uh, their wickedness isn't just perpetuating, but they're actually bringing people around them who are looking at them and saying, oh man, that's a, that's a great way to live. Like, like, who cares if we actually pay our, our laborers fair wages? We can make so much money if we don't do it that way. And, and, so, and so now you have sycophants and people following saying, oh, this is actually the righteous way to live. What does God know about anything? What does he know about staying pure until you're married? What does he know about your finances in, in the marketplace? What does he know about raising your kids in the fear of the Lord? What does he know about that? Right? This is what the wicked are like. They're always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. And one of the most powerful parts, uh, something I, I know I felt many times, surely in vain, for nothing, surely for nothing, I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. And, and then he, he sort of shifts here at verse 15. Now, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. There are people who look up to me. I can't just speak this way around, but this is where I was at. It was, it was the real tension of my soul. And he said, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Until 
I entered the sanctuary of God. Now, if we were at my church, my black church, there'd be somebody on the keys hitting a run in A flat, and we'd say, but God, and we'd all shout, and we wouldn't even preach, you know. But God. But until I entered the sanctuary of God, he has this change of heart, this change of mind, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. He's almost saying, even though they think of themselves as, as, as prospering, as, as building this lineage, this legacy, actually the reality is they're like that feeling you get when you wake up from a dream and you can barely remember it. And within moments it's gone. Right? This is what he's saying. He's like, oh, they're actually forgotten. You, you've actually set their path towards ruin. You, you, you won't be mocked. He says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He said, I was tripping. Yet, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I truly desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, my God, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all your deeds. Right. So, so that's Psalm 73, right? We just walked right on through it. As you get this sense of, of, of this psalm writer, he's, he's expressing his, his real discontent, his, his real anger, his real issues to a real God. And, and, and then he takes this turn. He has this moment uh, somewhere in between the sanctuary uh, as, as he enters into the presence of God and he leaves. He, he gains some understanding and he almost gains a sense of remembrance of like, oh, I, I remember why he even started all of this. I, I, I had this sense of, of it's good to be near God. I understand this now. So I want to start with, uh, so, so I, I'm, I'm going to break this down sort of into sections and just kind of give you my heart of what I was seeing when I was reading this, and then we're going to go eat the fresh lettuce at whatever restaurant we're going to. Um, okay, so first, um, there is something called a superscription. Whenever you read uh, the Psalms, uh, most often the Psalms, sometimes in Proverbs, but uh, uh, there's this something uh, theologians call the superscription, and it's the little part right after Psalm 73, but right before verse 1. And it might say, a, a song of David when he was doing this, a, a psalm of Asaph, uh, the, uh, a machil of the Levites, right? And it kind of gives this little tag. For Psalm 73, the superscription is a psalm of Asaph. And I want to camp out here for a bit. I know that's not even a verse yet, but I, like, to me, this is just how I think. I'm thinking like, man, Asaph, if you don't know anything about him, he's, he's um, well, we're not sure if it's an individual or if it's almost like a, a group. Uh, we, we do know that he's a Levite, um, and it's either like a band almost, like the Asaphs, like they get together and they make worship music, it's either like that, or it's an actual individual, or it's a father uh, who has like a family name, and all of his sons and children are Levites, and they write in his name. We're not quite sure, but either way, we do know he's a Levite. Um, and, and Levite is, uh, if you're unfamiliar, just this classification, uh, it's a priestly class, right? It's, uh, these are leaders of the church. This would be like Aaron writing a psalm, or, or, or Bob, or, 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 you know, someone in a position of authority. It's not a weak-willed uh, believer. It's not an immature Christian. Uh, this is Asaph. Um, and this is Asaph bringing his honest feelings about God to God. 
So, so he has some feelings about God and what God says is true, and he's bringing them to God. The difference between you talking to your friend about how bitter you are with the Lord and you bringing it to God is one is gossip and the other is faith. Right? So, so, so when I'm dialoguing with my wife and I'm like, man, I'm not sure how this is going to work out. There's, there's, there's a good part of that. She's my partner. She's my mate. But I have to be careful because sometimes I'm not really bringing things to God. I'm just gossiping. I'm just talking about him. And that's actually not very holy. That's not what God is intending me to do. But actually, he is open to me coming to him, about him, to him. Saying, God, like, this is, this is what I'm dealing with. Like, bro, I don't see it. I, I know what you said. I know that you said if I wash my hands in righteousness and innocence, I'll, I'll prosper. But I don't see it. I, I, I'm struggling. And, and so I, I think it's interesting that this is Asaph. He's, he's a spiritually mature person. He, he's not weak in faith. And this teaches us something about the nature of our questions, that, that maturity and questioning are not enemies to one another, right? They're, they're, they're not enemies. They, they actually, even in, in a certain way, they can go together. Actually, it's the mature people who understand the relationship with God is such that God wants our questions. We, we see this over and over in, in, in Scripture. Abraham in Genesis 18 is like, bro, you're about to firebomb a city? Would it be right for you to, sw- to sweep away the wicked with, with the good, with the innocent? Like, far be it from you. I mean, he's rebuking God. It's, 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 tight. it's like that moment you're at your friend's house, and he's talking crazy to his mom, and you're trying to get into the right position to catch his body when it falls. You know, it's like, you know, like I, I had some friends like that. I'm like, bro, you're talking to your mom kind of crazy. Like, my mom would, you know, that's, we, we grew up in different homes, you know. So, um, but it's that sense, Genesis 18, we see that. And, and God's response to him isn't, who do you think you are, questioning me like that? Instead, it's, uh, Abraham, I, I see, you, you don't fully see the whole picture. Let me show you. They're, they're not as righteous as you think. Right? It's, it's, it's God meeting him in the middle of his questions. Abraham's a pretty spiritual guy, I've heard. We, we see it over and over. Elijah, Moses, Jeremiah, they, they question God. There's this sense of faithful questioning that Asaph is continuing in. A man named Jesus is on the cross and says, God, why have you forsaken me? Right? So, 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 so this isn't an enemy of faith. It, it's, it's somehow, mysteriously, it's part of it. God is willing to be questioned in some ways. Uh, and, and so the first thing I just want to say is if Abraham can question God and Jesus can question God, you and I can ask our questions to God too. Some of us, we grew up in an environment, spiritual environments, where well-meaning people taught us that faith means you go into your room and you say, I love you, I trust you, I love you, I trust you, I love you, I trust you, I love you, I trust you. And, and, and they were well-meaning, and, 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 and there is a place for that, but the reality is a lot of us were just taught how to lie to God really well. And it's not helpful for us, it's not helpful for our relationship with the Lord, it's not helpful for people around us who are trying to figure out what real faith looks like. Because all they ever see is the sanitized version. They never see people they trust wrestle. And then they start to believe, well, maybe that's what it means. Maybe I'll finally be mature if I don't have any questions or any doubts. And, and you guys already know that's not, that's not the case. If it wasn't the case for Jesus, it's, you know, and he was a pretty spiritual guy too, I've heard. You know, like it's probably not the case for us. And so, so the very first thing I, I, I learned from this passage is like, man, this is, I get to continue in a tradition of faithful questioning. And, and I have this sense that every time we ask a question about God we, or, or to God, we are making a silent statement that we believe 
he will give us answers, right? It's, it's actually a, it's a step of belief. That's why I'm asking him. I'm coming to him because I'm trusting that there's something wrong in what I'm feeling, but I don't know what the answer is. I'm, I'm trusting that he's going to give it to me. Um, and so I want to call this faithful questioning. And I want you, from this day forth, to consider faithful questioning as a type of spiritual warfare. Faithful questioning as a type of spiritual warfare. That, that when you go down in, in your room alone and you're praying and you're pouring your heart out to God, like, man, I don't get it. Why are you doing this? Why isn't this happening the way I thought it would? That, and that, that little voice comes into your ear and says, how dare you? God doesn't want to hear this from you. Don't even think about it too much. How, who do you think you are to question God like this, right? That, that familiar voice, it sounds familiar, not because it's the Lord, but because it's the same voice that's been whispering to us since Genesis 3 in the garden. It is the, the evil one, the enemy, who wants us to think that God is selfish, self-centered, capricious, legalistic. He doesn't really care about you. I mean, that, that's just a retelling of the same old lie. Like, did God really say that? Did, did he really say that for your benefit, or is he just holding out on you? Does he really love you, or, 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 or maybe he's just using you? Maybe you're part of some sort of scheme. Maybe he's just selfish. That's what that voice is. And, and, and so when we labor in prayer, when we, when we bring our full selves to God, we're engaging in spiritual warfare. We are saying to a dark world with dark powers that the lies of the evil one have been conquered by the one who is sufficient to hear our requests and prayers. That's what we're doing. When we live like this, we are challenging the broken, and dare I say demonic, ideology that our life with God is about protecting him from ourselves. As, as if God is so egotistical, so thin-skinned, so, so, so insecure that he, he can't take a little bit of our questions. It, it's ridiculous. It's not helpful. And, and so um, there's a story that came to mind when I was thinking about this, and then I'm going to move on. Um, but I have the world's best dad. If I talk about it too long, I will cry. I, I normally do. Um, he's just amazing. Uh, everything he ever said, he did. He's a pastor. And I, I got to watch him live his life as he preached. And everything he ever said, he did. I didn't even know that wasn't a normal thing until I grew up a little bit. I'm like, you just got people running around lying? Is that a thing? I didn't know. I had no idea. Right? So it's amazing dad. So I'm playing football. I'm 13. Can't drive yet. Me and my brother are playing uh, football together. I'm a twin, if you didn't know. He's great. Um, I love you wherever you are. Anyways. Uh, and, and so I'm 13, I'm playing football, and, you know, by playing, I mean, I, I played right bench, I played left bench, I played tic-tac-toe while other people were playing, you know what I'm saying, I, I had a very prolific career, um, but I'm playing football, um, and what would happen is my dad would pick us up every day at a certain part of the, of the field after practice was over, and so, and all the kids would gather around, this is where all the parents would pick up uh, the freshmen who can drive, um, and so all my friends are playing, and my dad was late one day. And so me and my brother are like, oh, dad's never late. Like, and we start to get worried and a little anxious. And, and so we just kind of sit on the bench, eyes glued to the entrance, just waiting, like just waiting and waiting and waiting. And so eventually he comes up, we get into the car, and he's driving off, and he's like, how come you guys weren't playing with your friends? And we're like, well, you know, we, uh, you weren't coming for a bit, and we were worried, like, maybe you wouldn't come, and we just wanted to make sure, like, when you got here, you know, like, we could see you, and so we wouldn't get in trouble, and, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to spin this story. And my, and my dad, he, he stops, he's, he's, like, not in a parking place, a uh, parking space or anything, in, in the middle of the road, he stops the car, puts it in park, he turns around, and he says, don't you ever 
do that again. And we're like, big black daddy, oh my gosh, it's, you know, it, it's just too much. Okay, I don't know what we did. I'm not trying to get a whooping today. I had a long day. Um, and, and so we're not sure why he's so upset. And he says, I'm your dad. I will always come for you. If I'm late, you play. If I'm late, you play. This is the sense of, of the nature of the father that we're worshiping, right? That we can bring him whatever because, because he's okay. He's like, look, I'm going to come. If you're wrestling with something and you're not sure where I am and you need to express yourself, it's all right. You, you do your thing. I'm, I'm good enough. I'll be there eventually. You don't have to protect me. I'm the father. You're the child. That's the relationship. It's, I know I'm just in my intro and we got to go, okay, but that's how I get. Okay, so let me move on. So verses 3 through 13, I'm going to summarize, uh, and I'm not sure what you're able to see, um, but, but we read it. I'm going to summarize in, in, in two of the key verses I see here, uh, where one, he says, I was envious of the arrogant. And then he goes on to say, surely I, I've washed my hands in innocence for nothing, right? And, and, and that's just real, right? Like all of us have felt that way at some point, probably, right? Like the sense of, man, is this really, really worth it? I was talking to a, a friend of mine who's He's in his 20s, he's single, and he's like, man, like, I'm the only virgin I know. Like, this is embarrassing. Would, any, would anybody even want to be with someone like me? And, like, and it's like, I, I'm doing everything I can. I'm in my room. I'm praying for purity. I'm, I'm asking God for help. And it just seems like everyone else is in relationships, and they're prospering, and they're happy, and all these. And it's just me. And he's, he's living in this environment with a bunch of non-believers, and they're just living life to the full. And he's just watching and being like, He's like, almost, I wish I could do that. Like, I don't, I wish, I wish I wasn't so aware of God so I could just do what they do because it seems like they're having such a good time. And what about me? Right? This is Asaph's sort of point. It's like, what about me? Okay, yeah, God, again, I, I, I know that you're good. I know, you know, I've, I've been to church plenty of times, but what about me? There's a sense of, 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 of maybe a, a, a mother who, who had this conviction of like, man, I, I've got to raise the kids myself. Like, I'm not going to leave my kids into the hands of a world that doesn't know you, Lord. And so I'm, I'm going to put my, my own career on hold, and I'm going to raise these kids. And it's like, I love my kids. I love them. I love my husband. But, but sometimes when they're at school and he's at work, there's this sense just in your living room alone of like, man, but what about me? Like, is this it? Like... Like, I, I'm doing my best to worship you, but it seems like everyone else, they're getting along with their life, and they have this full, loving identity, and I'm just like a mom, and like, is this it? Is this, is this all it is? This is what Asaph is, is pulling at. In verses 15 through 20, it's characterized more by, uh, he says, until I entered the sanctuary of God, and then he goes on to talk about what God has done. He set them on slippery ground. And this is the turning point of the psalm where, where, where Asaph is being honest about God to God. He's doing that. And, and he recognizes, like, man, this isn't even necessarily healthy for me to do in front of other people. There's people who respect me and, and mature, and, like, I want to be honest with them, but, like, I'm dealing with something uh, almost too deep for a lesson right now. Like, I, I need to get away. I need to be with God. Uh, and he does that. And he goes to the sanctuary, and something changes. Now, obviously, the sanctuary is the place where God is, uh, and, and so it's, it's not clear what he's getting at, but we can get the feeling, like something happens there. He, he goes and he remembers who God is. He, he's like, but until I entered the sanctuary, 
And he learns two things. The first thing isn't super popular um, anymore. You know, it sounds a little too 1950s fire and brimstone. But the first thing is that God will not be mocked. That he's a God of justice and judgment. Um, and, and that he's going to punish uh, the wicked. Uh, he, he's not going to be he mocked. Asaph is acknowledging that there's this world that he lives in where the wicked seem to be prospering and the righteous don't. And, and, and he's like, oh, I remember, God, you've set their, their path on a path of destruction. Like, like they may think they're getting away, but, but you won't be mocked. Right? He, Asaph lives in a world like we live in, a world where the average age of porn consumption is eight years old, and the average net worth of the pornographers is probably closely closer to 8 million. God will not be mocked. Asaph lives in, in a world much like ours where tyrants and despots eat caviar and exploit people and teachers in the inner city eat ramen noodles. God will not be mocked. Asaph lives in a world much like ours where there are more modern day slaves today than at any other point in human history and there are more wealthy, prosperous slavers than there were in the heyday of the antebellum South. God will not be mocked. He's remembering like God, God, no one gets away from your justice and your judgment. And it's good for us. It's good for us to know. Um, and, and, and then the second part, and this is just an aside for us, like why do these things persist? Why is the world the way it is? It's unfortunate. Mostly it's because God is generous. Jesus talks about this parable where, where essentially people are, are continually given opportunities they don't deserve and given wages they haven't truly earned. And the disciples come and say, and they're angry and they're like, this isn't fair. And Jesus says, isn't it God's right to do what he wants with what he has? Can't he give mercy to whoever he desires to? And it's hard. It's a hard teaching. Romans 2 and 4 talks about actually it's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. So it's this idea that as believers, faithful believers in a world like this, we're stuck between two poles. On one hand, we, we acknowledge that God wants to mediate his kindness and his patience through us to the wicked of the world. Like it's actually part of our job to pray with tears that they would come to know who Jesus is, be washed in righteousness just like we were and forgiven. Like, that's supposed to be part of our story. But the other part we don't always talk about is it's also good for us to pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly with your justice. Like, like that's the other part. That, 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 that's the other good news that God really will punish people. There are people who will never repent, never turn away from their ways, and, and God will not be mocked. This is the tension of the believer. And finally, verses 21 through 28 says, God, with all this, even after the, the judgment on the wicked, yet I am always with you. And he ends with this beautiful, powerful phrase of, it is good to be near God. Yet I am always with you. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, yet I'm always with you, and it is good to be near God. Now, this last thing, everything else you should maybe take on faith. Don't take this part on faith, okay? The part that it's good to be near God, that's not something anybody should take on faith. That part is something that each of us should endeavor to discover for ourselves because the type of life God is calling us into in the world that he's decided to leave us in, right? He's left us in a world that has many storms and instead of changing the environment, he says, build your house on rock instead of sand, right? That's the position that we're in. 
In order to live in that world well, we need to know that it's good to be near God. We need to know it. We need not just to know it intellectually, right? That's not what Asaph's getting at. He has some sort of encounter, a mysterious, miraculous, whatever you want to call it, but something deeper than human wisdom. He, he has this awareness of, but God, this is better. This is better than whatever they're doing. It's better than whatever's happening out there. Life with you is better. And that cannot just be learned, right? It is, it's not something you can memorize and say, okay, yeah, it's good to be better. Because when you end up in that terrible, dark place, you need the person who makes those words true. And, and this is the part where I want to encourage us either, uh, depending on where we're at, maybe you're a person, you're like, you know what? I, I actually have tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord. Like I have, it hasn't been recent, but I've tasted and seen. And for me, maybe you, the discipline is remembering, intentionally remembering, praying, God, would you restore to me the joy of my salvation? Would you help me to remember what it was like when I caught a glimpse of you just for a moment? I felt like, man, I could do anything. I'll give up anything for you. And you knew that it was better to be near God. Ask God to restore that for you. That, that's what the church, the body of Christ needs to be reminded. Like God isn't just a theological system. He's a person. He's not a general looking for more soldiers to fight in his army. He's not a galactic CEO looking for employees to pad his bottom line. He's a father in search of children to trust him with all things, even their doubts. He's the dad who says, hey, if I'm not here, you, you trust me and you play. That requires a certain amount of relationship. And, and sitting in church on Sunday, as great as this is, that's not enough. And you know it. Times of, of darkness and despair in your life where you're like, I need more than a good book. I need more than a good song. I, I, need, I, I need God. I need to know that it's good to be near him. Nobody can snap their fingers and make this happen. There's no ritual. You have to do what Asaph did. You, you have to go to the place you saw him last. And, and you have to lay yourself bare and say, God, at the time of your choosing, will you remind me? In, in some way, in some circumstance, in, in some methodology, will you remind me that it's good to be near you? Good to have what you have? And I, I want to end with this. Um, I, I've been reading this book. I left it at home, but my wife is great, and so she sent me a screenshot. Um, It is called Two Centuries, it's called A Conversation, Two Centuries of African American Prayer. Um, and it's this book that's a collection of prayers that have been found or recorded pretty much from the late 1700s uh, to the 1900s. Um, and so obviously the first portion is all slave prayers. And um, here's a prayer that was recorded by a slave woman in... 1816. Uh, we don't know her name. Um, and, and I just want to read this to you to drive this next point home uh, before we leave. She says, O Lord, bless my master. When he calls upon you to damn his soul, please do not hear him. Do not hear him, but hear me. Save him. Make him know that he is wicked so that he will pray to you. I am afraid, Lord. I have wished him bad wishes in my heart. Keep me from wishing him bad. Though he whips me and beats me sore, tell me of my sins and make me pray more to thee 
make me more glad for what you have done for me, a poor Negro. I read this prayer. Sometimes I leave it being like, I hate white people! Um, and <laughs> that's not today. Um, and then sometimes I read it and I cry and I'm like, what did she know about you, God? Like, what, like what did she have with you? What encounter, what, what mysterious moment must she have had with you to be able to pray a prayer like this? I, I'm undone. I'm like, she knows, she wasn't very literate. She didn't have very good theology, I'm sure, but she knew you. And somehow in between uh, beatings and, and picking cotton, in between there, she was able to utter a prayer like this, God save my master? Who is this? What peculiar people follow you? This wasn't a sermon. It wasn't a song she sung. She, she, she knew God. She, she had this sense of despite my circumstances, this is so difficult for me, but despite my circumstances, it is good to be near God. It's good to be near God. It's good for my master to be near God. Despite these circumstances, I don't know how she prayed it. Some days I feel like I understand it. Most days I'm like, I'm, I'm missing it. This is the story of a woman who knew in truth that it is good to be near God. I want to leave you with this. It is not good to be wealthy. It isn't good to be married. It isn't good to have a job that you enjoy. It isn't good to live in America. It isn't good to drive a Tesla. It isn't good. It isn't good. It isn't good. It is good to be near God. Let me pray for us that we would come to believe that. Lord, we thank you for your witness among the brokenness of the world. We can look into every decade, every year, and see people in, in unenviable circumstances lifting up your name because they know something that sometimes we forget, maybe haven't even discovered truly, that it is good to be near you. Jesus, would you make us excited to learn what she knew, even if it brings us into circumstances just like these, Lord? Would it be our deepest desire to know that it's good to be near you? We pray all this in your name. Amen.